California does stand at the forefront of the economy. What we do here in the state really does set a kind of pace and a tone for the rest of the nation. The Golden State, the Beach State, the El Dorado State. Sounds like a pretty nice place to live, doesn't it? And with more than 3,600 hours of sunshine every year, for many of us, California seems like an idyllic place to call home. In London, by comparison, we see the sun for less than half of that time. But California isn't just beaches and cloudless days. It's an incredibly diverse state and an economic powerhouse, and one that sets the pace and tone for the US in many ways. Welcome back to The Ballpark, a podcast from the failing United States Center at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson, Managing Editor of the LSE US Center's USAP blog, which has been covering US politics and policy issues since 2013. And I'm Alina Ganatra, podcast producer here at The Ballpark. This season, we're continuing our State of the States theme. In each episode, we look at what's going on in a single US state to see what we can learn about where the nation is going. Today, we're going to look at California, its politics, and how it leads the nation in environmental policy. Just to remind you why we're talking about states like California, we covered this in Season 2, Episode 2 of The Ballpark, when we asked whether state governments really matter. But before we dive into sunny California, just a small bit of podcast housekeeping. We put together most of this episode in early 2020. And then COVID-19 hit, well, everywhere, which meant we had to shelve it and the interviews with academic experts we'd conducted. But we're back in business again, and have tried to use as much of our original content as we can. So, back to the Golden States. California is well known as an economic powerhouse, both for the United States and the world at large. It has the largest population of any US state, with almost 40 million residents, and has become increasingly diverse over the last century. No one ethnic or racial group makes up a majority in California. It's also an overwhelmingly democratic state, that's democratic with a capital D, and it's one of the US's 14 democratic trifectas, which means that the state senate, legislature, and governor's mansion is controlled by the same party. And now for a quick virtual tour of California from someone who knows it well. So if we really want to, to talk about California as a coherent whole, it's, it's difficult to do that because from north to south, the landscape varies so wildly. And it might take all day to actually discuss all of the different landscapes that, that California includes. Renee Van Vechten is a professor of political science at the University of Redlands in California. We asked Professor Van Vechten to give us a quick tour of California's population and its geography. Very briefly, we can divide the state probably into the top two-thirds, the bottom third, and then we can also divide it lengthwise so that east to west uh, we have also very different sorts of landscapes. And we can talk about geographic landscapes and political landscapes, which uh, also sort of fall into these interesting quadrants. So if you start at the top of the state, we're looking at beautiful ancient redwood forests and the mystical mystic seas and rugged coastline uh, at the northern tip there. But as you move inland, it, it becomes more volcanic and a little bit drier. And then as we go down the state, we find San Francisco in the Bay Area, which really dominates the whole state in a lot of ways. Um, And as you move inward from that point, you'll move over to the beautiful Lake Tahoe area with mountains and lots of snow and um, sort of the playground for many Californians. 
and coming back down the coast, then you'll find some unparalleled beauties of the beaches of Central California and start to find a lot more densely populated areas. And this part of the state, the, the coast is where you find most of the people. Um, the southern parts are where you find most of the people. And it's also more, more democratic than, and progressive than the inner parts of the state. So the inland region, um, as, you, as you move down the state, um, the, the, in the lower part of the state, we have Los Angeles, which is, of course, the most populated part of the state, and it has 10 million people in it. And uh, as you as you travel inward from that point or inland from that point, it's just desert. Um, and below that, we have the fastest growing region uh, of the state, which is Riverside, San Bernardino, Imperial Counties, and uh, Coast San Diego, which, of course, is a border county. And so immigration tends to be a really important issue, not just for the, the bottom part of the state, but because we're a gateway, that issue tends to dominate. But population-wise, you can also talk about California's divisions in terms of populations, and they're scattered sort of all over the state. So one measure called the measure of California, we talk about the measure of California, the portrait of California, which divides up our populations into five different categories. And we have a 1% that's located in the Bay Area in Santa Clara. And you know, they live in homes that cost two and a half million dollars. They're, they're beneficiaries and drivers of this technological sort of economy, the information economy. Um, and then we have these elite enclaves, which really are less than maybe 15% of the population, but, but they're located in some of the more urban areas of the state. And the rural area of the state is really all along the inner border of our state, that border, we border Nevada, and Arizona, and those parts of the state tend to be more rural. And that's where you find struggling California, but you find struggling California in, in lots of urban areas as well. And we also have the dispossessed, who really just maybe 3% of the population who are the homeless, they tend to be not well-educated and are really disenfranchised from much of society. So lots of ways we can talk about California. This struggling California makes up 42% of the state. They are majority Latino and work in insecure, high-effort, low-reward jobs without benefits, and a high percentage of employable youth in this group are out of work. And as a final note on the different Californias, suburbia is generally where you find Main Street Californians, which includes about 40% of the population, about 55% of whom are persons of color. Three or four are foreign-born. This group is largely composed of middle-class families with breadwinners who work in mainly in service sectors. Their incomes are spent largely on housing and health care, and finding childcare is often a significant challenge. Professor Van Vechten also gave us an overview of what's been happening in California's political scene for the past decade, from the political rise of Arnold Schwarzenegger to the state's more recent anti-Trumpism. The last decade has, I think, been quite transformative for California because we were climbing out of a recession about 10 years ago. And the larger economy really does set the stage for the type of politics that take place in any kind of area because of our large and dense and really hyper-diverse population, the needs of the state are, as you can imagine, great. So our budget also tends to be quite colossal. Um, and as the nation goes, California goes, and vice versa. So 10 years ago, when the economy, when we were in and climbing out of the Great Recession, California's fortunes really had taken a dive. When we had a changeover in leadership and we had 
Arnold Schwarzenegger, our Terminator government <laughs> governor leaving office, he also left us with a $27 billion budget hole. So it took quite a few years to recover from that. And after he left office, Jerry Brown came back to office after having been out of office for quite some time. He had been our governor in the 1970s and served two terms. Um, he came back as a much more seasoned and a little more judicious sort of person who was willing to stand up to Democrats, even though he is a Democrat. Um, he was willing to stand up to lawmakers and really sort of bite the bullet and bring us back into fiscal alignment. So along with the help of a recovering economy, for eight years, Jerry Brown was the governor, and he was able to make some cutbacks initially and then slowly add some programs back into the state budget. So over the last 10 years, at least economically, we've had a huge recovery. We've also seen politically a much more strong solidification of democratic control. And that has happened not only at the state level, where you see that all the executive offices and a supermajority in the legislature are democratic, but you also see this reflected in the population as well. And one of the more interesting things that's happened is that if you look at party registration, Democratic Party registration hovers at about 44%. And we also have this other category, no party preference, which is, I won't say skyrocketed, but it's actually climbed to almost 27%. And meanwhile, Republican Party preferences has, has plummeted to under a quarter of the population. And that's, that's a really big change, a notable change. And you see that reflected in the politics of the state. So even though we're not a, a simple majority Democrat or an absolute majority Democratic state, the voters in this in the Golden State really do tend to support Democratic politics and progressive politics at that. So along those lines, some of the, the other kinds of interesting electoral changes that have taken place are that we've moved to a two top two primary system. And this is a, a quite an, a different, innovative, one could say, electoral scheme where voters go to the polls in a primary election and they choose from among all of the candidates for an office, regardless of party preference and their, the, the candidate's party affiliation. And whoever are the top two vote getters go on to compete in the general election. So that could be two Democrats. It could be two Republicans. It could be a Republican versus a Democrat. It's very, very rarely an independent uh, or, an, or a third party member, but it's typically a Democrat versus a Democrat, um, because what we found, of course, is that Democrats really do have a solid, solid majority in elective office. But also, um, as it turns out, those no party preference voters have really been supporting Democrats in office as well. So I, I would also just point out that a couple of big issues have really dominated state politics and and those are um, immigration, and we have uh, we have climate change as well that's been really dominating our politics as well as our conversations in at least a legislative level. The last 18 months have been turbulent in the US, and California has been no exception. In addition to dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic, there was also a recall election for the state's governor this year. Unsurprisingly, due to its generally favourable view of government intervention, California's COVID-19 restrictions have been some of the strictest in the country. It was the first to issue a statewide lockdown on March 19, 2020, with in-person public education being suspended shortly afterwards. 
Since the vaccine rollout, California has had one of the lowest COVID-19 rates in the US, although recently there's been a disparity in cases within the state. Refusal to be vaccinated and take precautions, such as wearing a mask and social distancing, has rendered some local communities more vulnerable to the Delta variant of COVID-19. In the early spring of 2021, a recall attempt for Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom gathered momentum, and those in favor were able to gather the 1.5 million signatures needed to trigger recall. Since 2003, 54 other Republican attempts to recall a Californian governor have failed to reach the signatures needed. But this time, because of COVID, the period to collect signatories was extended by a state judge, giving recall proponents more opportunities to gather the signatures needed. As the September election neared, Democrats rallied behind their incumbent, Gavin Newsom, who won the vote by a large margin, with the frontrunner replacement candidate, Republican Larry Elder, conceding defeat. Of course, California's economy is just as important, if not more, than its politics. You could say it's the pace setter for the rest of the United States. California does stand at the forefront of the economy. And there was a study that was done a couple of years ago that shows that California is actually driving the national economy. Um, what we do here in the state really does set a kind of pace and a tone for the rest of the nation. Um, our economy is much larger than any other state, right? If we were a country, we would be the fifth largest, right? We have one of the world's most diverse populations the strongest economy of all the states. And turns out that it, we really are strong across a number of sectors. We are the nation's breadbasket. We produce most of the country's fruits and nuts and vegetables. We're a net exporter for most, uh, for almonds, for example. We have also quite a strong energy production economy, but we're also trying to move to a greener economy and trying to find ways to develop technologies that others can use to do things like reduce greenhouse gas emissions. But we have a very, very strong technological and sort of information and knowledge economy here, which it really does make us a leader, a world leader. California's economic power also means that when it sets standards like environmental regulations, that the rest of the country often follows. For more on this, we spoke to Professor Leah Stokes from the University of California in Santa Barbara, who works on energy, climate and environmental politics, as well as public policy, particularly at the state level. Well, for the last couple decades, uh, California has had the ability to set its own air quality rules for cars to basically make car efficiency standards more stringent than the federal government. The other thing that California has been doing a lot in the past couple decades since 2002 is it's been increasing the amount of clean electricity that it has. And so right now there's a 100% target for clean electricity by 2045. And the state is doing pretty great in terms of cleaning up its electricity mix. About, uh, I think, almost half of the electricity in California comes from clean energy sources today. And that's only going to uh, increase in the future. And then the, the last big policy that the state has is a cap and trade program, kind of like the European Union has in its emissions trading system. And this cap and trade program was first put into law in 2006, and uh, it has grown over time. And it now covers, I believe, 85% of the emissions from California. And one area that California is really struggling to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions is in transportation, because people might know that California is a place with a lot of sprawl, that people drive their cars a lot. And so 
cleaning up the electricity system is the first step, but then cleaning up the transportation system is going to be a big challenge in terms of reducing emissions. While the Biden administration in Washington, D.C. broadly agrees with California on the environment, the then-President Trump had a great deal of disagreement with the Golden State's environmental policies, mostly because many other states still use a lot of coal. Just to note, what Professor Stokes says next was recorded while Trump was still president. Well, the, the Trump administration and California are in, are in legal battles over whether or not California has the right to set its own vehicle um, air quality standards. And California has been a really important state in terms of making those targets more aggressive. And what's happening with it is that the Trump administration wants to take away their ability to do that. And there are also more subtle things that the Trump administration has been doing. There's a federal energy regulator, and they have been interfering more and more in sort of states' uh, jurisdiction to clean up their electricity system. They're passing rules, for example, that are going to basically make it easier for coal plants to stay open longer. That doesn't tend to affect California that much, but it does affect a lot of other states like Ohio and the Midwest, where uh, there's still a lot of coal in the electricity system. And providing extra money to those coal plants could cause them to stay open longer. So overall, the Trump administration is really trying to slow down climate action in the United States by either infringing on states like California's ability to set better policy or um, give other states the ability to kind of weaken action by, for example, subsidizing coal plants. So why has California historically been a first mover on environmental issues? My um, knowledge of the history of that is that it's actually because California acted before the federal government in terms of setting Clean Air Act standards. So California had a lot of smog and air pollution historically, particularly in the L.A. area. And so the state went ahead and set its own Clean Air Act. And it was only later that the federal government in 1970 passed the first Clean Air Act, and then it amended it many times afterwards. And so the fact that California went before the federal government is the reason why California has that jurisdiction to set its own rules. And that's happened for many decades, and it's only today that the Trump administration is trying to undermine that ability. One urgent way in which this fight over environmental laws and regulations has played out is related to the world's worsening wildfires. Wildfires throughout 2019 and 2020, in places ranging from California to the Amazon to Australia, demonstrated why legislators at various levels of government are so adamant to move forward on environmental issues. As climate change progresses, the need for aggressive climate legislation increases, and California is working to remain at the forefront of these measures. Climate change is happening now. We have already warmed the planet by one degree Celsius, and that means that many places all around the world have been experiencing historic fires. You see this in California, in Australia, in Greece, in Siberia. All around the world, communities are being heavily impacted. People are losing their lives, their homes, their communities because of fires. In California, we have had a historic drought because of climate change. And then we have had increasing risk for wildfires because of climate change. Specifically, research says that two times as much land has burned in the Western United States than would have otherwise because of climate change. And we have 500% more risk for wildfires because of climate change. We are entering a period where wildfires are now year-round in California. And that is leading to devastating uh, situations like the Camp Fire in Northern California, which caused 
I believe, 90 people to, uh, to lose their lives, many people to lose their homes, an entire community in Paradise, California, to be decimated. And so these fires are becoming more and more commonplace, and they're leading to things like uh, electricity companies turning off their power lines in order to reduce wildfire risk during uh, certain weather events. And that is unfortunately causing a lot of people to not have electricity who might need it, like the elderly, people who need it for health care. It's also causing them to lose food that's in freezers, for example. So there's a lot of negative impacts from climate change. Going back to Professor Renee Van Vechten, she talked about how the key to managing California's wildfires is closer collaboration between the state and federal government. It's true that we do have underbrush and we could put a lot more resources into clearing out the forest, but we are in partnership with the federal government. And most of the forests in California are actually owned and managed by the federal government. So if we really want to do anything about fires, it's going to take a much greater investment from the federal government to actually do, to, to do more clearing out of fire-prone areas and that sort of thing. But it also does take planning on our part, and we are working as partners to, I think, to attack those sorts of issues. So, so putting more money into it is clearly part of what we need to do. Um, we're spending a lot on the back end, which is to do cleanup. And as everyone knows, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And so, with the, I think one of the things that that you will see is that we're trying to to address um, to address this partly by putting more money toward better equipment and hiring more hiring more firefighters. So that's that's one way we're trying to do this. One of the other ways we're going to try to get a handle on on wildfire disasters is by managing resources that are um, are now under the control of some of our major state utilities like PG&E and SDG&E. And we've had major wildfires in the southern part of the state and they've been connected in some cases to faulty equipment or to lightning strikes that happen in the middle of the state where, um, you know, like uh, trees have grown up around equipment that weren't supposed to be trimmed and they weren't, and that lights off a big conflagration. PG&E has taken responsibility for the campfire that took out you know, more than 14,000 homes um, and they're on the verge of bankruptcy, and the state has gotten involved in that as well. And uh, the governor has, of course, uh, blamed them quite vocally for their their missteps in the past. And so, what what we're going to try to do, at least in the future here, is to um, dictate. At least the state itself is going to try to dictate some of the terms for these utilities to clean up their act and make sure that wildfires aren't sparked, at least by human error. Although the state government bumped heads with the Trump administration on wildfire and climate policy, this is in stark contrast to the current administration's approach, which is much more aligned with California's. Since taking office, Joe Biden has stressed the importance of wildfire mitigation, saying, these fires are a blinking red code for our nation. They're gaining frequency and ferocity, and we know what we need to do. So we can see that California is a huge player in American politics, as well as the wider world. Its huge economic power allows the state to have a larger influence on environmental policy, whether it's through a commitment to greener energy, the Clean Air Act, and wildfire management schemes. I think that California politics are a lot about climate. They are hopeful. They're innovative. We tend to have ideas here that other places in the world have never tried before. 
We have things like cities right now banning natural gas from homes and buildings and new buildings. And that's a really innovative idea to tackle the climate crisis. And I think it's very exciting. Not only is California a center of policy innovation, as Professor Leah Stokes just mentioned, it's also a place where diversity and inclusivity are important too. Professor Van Vechten spoke on this. California is hyper-diverse. And so that means its struggles, its challenges, and its successes are also hyper-diverse. And if you're going to be a successful kind of, of politician, or if you're going to be voting on issues, maybe that means you have to be familiar with a whole lot of issues <laughs> and know that, that whatever solutions are out there are going to affect different populations and communities differently. So I think in order to know anything about California, clearly hyperdiversity is rampant. <laughs> hyperdiversity characterizes us in terms of geography, population, you know, 220 different languages spoken just in our state alone, and ballot pamphlets are printed in 10 languages. 52% of our school children are Hispanic, or as we say, Latinx. And we have a massive economy that does drive the nation's economy. So I think hyperdiversity would probably have to be the word that catch all. I think progressive politics is probably the right word to use when you talk about California politics, because we are a state in which most people don't consider themselves to be liberal. We don't quite have a democratic majority, and yet Democrats dominate politics up and down the state. Republicans have become a, a sort of permanent minority, and their numbers are actually dipping as the number of no-party no preference voters increases. We could talk about California all day long, but it's time to leave the Golden State for now. Next time, we'll be visiting New York to examine how America's biggest city works in a state that is surprisingly rural. So that's it for this episode of The Ballpark. Thanks so much for joining us to learn something new about the Golden State. Thanks to Professor Rene Van Vechten at the University of Redlands and Professor Leah Stokes at the University of California, Santa Barbara. This episode of The Ballpark was produced by Michaela Herman, Alina Ganatra, and Chris Gilson. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rear Rangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the Phelan United States Center or of the London School of Economics. To listen to all our previous episodes, just enter LSE Ballpark into your search engine of choice. You'll find us. We're free to listen to, and unlike lots of other podcasts, we're ad-free. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.